Like, I think the fear of rejection is a huge issue with consultants out there at the moment. But you want to get people who do say no to you, and of course, and the thing about it is don't take it personally. But you have to have a standard value for yourself. You can't let people dictate your sense of your own value. Hi, this is Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Here is part two of our HMA marketing system training with Dave Flannery. Dave's going for the title of world's number one HMA consultant. Part one, we discussed about how he was able to use his USP at a series of parties to generate over 24 opportunity analysis appointments, generated and closed 17 paying clients. Since then, he's deposited close to seventy dollars to $80,000 in U.S. version money into his bank account, closing on all 17 of the projects. In this conversation, you're going to hear what it's like working with 17 clients. You're going to hear about some of the challenges he's had. You're going to hear some philosophy on his confidence in how he presents himself with his fees. And this is just recording number two that's going to take you through his process and his journey in becoming HMA's number one marketing consultant. There's a lot of value here for you, the HMA consultants. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you find it beneficial. Let's get going. Why don't you tell me what's going on? So I've just finished step one of project one, which means I've done 17 staff focus group sessions. All right, so project one, you met with all your clients at their businesses, and you did step one for them? Step one of project one. Any challenges in creating the USPs for them? You know, I'm only on just step one, you know, just trying to get focused on where they are. The customer service do yet, and their competitor right, and the competitor analysis do yet as well. So the first step was talking to it, all the businesses? The business owner and the staff. Now, the strange thing is in some they didn't mind the owner the staff as a whole didn't mind the owner being there then in others they did mind it so how did you handle that basically asked the owner I could speak to the staff alone for five minutes asked the staff would they find this intimidating if the owner was there and if they said well if they didn't mind it I let the owner come in they did say it was intimidated I'd go back and I'd spend 10 or 15 minutes to explain to the owner that listen we need to get a kind of honest reaction from the staff here so they might be a little bit intimidated by it spend a half an hour or 40 minutes with them come back to you for a half an hour or 40 minutes and then I got two separate opinions what did you learn by doing this for 17 businesses even though it's a free flow session and that's what you want is ideas and free flows and free talk you have to learn to kind of not let it get off the rails my first one or two I kind of let it kind of get skewed a little bit into a kind of let's beat the owner up sort of thing do you know what I mean got off a little bit off tangent and you have to learn to see that and pull it back were you able to collect all your checks all the time so when you got there he had your check for you or did you get it the beginning or the end I never asked for it you never asked for it no I never asked for it I went in with the assumption that I I would get it no problem. Did they ask you how you want it made out before you left? If they handed me the check before it started, that was fantastic, but I had no problem waiting for it until the end, you know. I personally wouldn't push that aspect of it. Unless it came to the end, it was plainly obvious that there was a problem. Now, if there was a problem, like if you'd forgotten or something like that, I wouldn't have blown the gasket or like screamed bloody murder. You'd obviously people forget and our mistakes are made or whatever it might be, you know. So you have to kind of play that as you get it. So no one had to reschedule, everyone was on board. Yeah. That's great. I think I've been very lucky so far. I mean, I'm waiting from crashing down in my head. It's gone so well so far, you know. Now, the one thing that I would say is don't try to analyze as you're taking notes. I tried to do that for the first two or three, and what happened was, kind of gets disjointed, because you're looking at your notes, and you're kind of 
trying to analyse it, you're missing something that's in the meeting. So what I would do is take longhand notes and try and get it into mind maps. Take a central thought in this stage would be the question, why should people do business with us? Why have they done it in the past and why should they do it in the future? Make that as a central theme and have little spokes coming out and ask each of those spokes then for an idea that you think is pertinent, you write that down straight away. And you end up with something that looks like a wheel. You know, so I've explained that very well now, but if somebody wants to look it up on the internet, if they want to go to Amazon.com and just put in mind maps, they'll get some very good books. And it's a way for me to keep track of what was going on in each while and listen to the meeting rather than trying to analyse what has been said. That comes later. The analysis of the thing won't come until the write-up, which is down the line. That's until step four. So you've got the competitive analysis and you've got competitor analysis and you've got the customer survey. So I feel if I start analysing now, I'll, I'll get flawed information, I'll get skewed. I think if you try and analyse too early, you'll get a flawed sense of what's going on. And if you analyse during your interviews, especially if it's going so fast, that people are kind of not screaming shouting, but they want to get their ideas up, you're going to miss something. So I think for myself anyway, the mind map is a great way of writing down longhand small points, like it doesn't have to be a big essay. And you end up with, on one page then, the pertinent points of the interview of the focus group and funny thing when somebody sees somebody recording a lot of people don't like it they just feel that they have to be wary of what they're saying and you don't want people to be wary of that thing like you've got the owner out of the meeting because that's exactly what you're not going to do so if you record them because it's scared the owner's going to hear what's been said or it's going to be played back to the owner or whatever it might be whatever the reservations might be they're not going to be as forthcoming because it gives them a sense of deniability when they're not being recorded they can always say well no I didn't say that how helpful was interviewing the employees with the owner not there was the real stuff coming out my first two did go off on a bit of a tangent but I expected that I didn't really pull it back start pulling it back onto the third focus group how do you position yourself when you go in there and you're meeting with the employees what do you say to them of why you're here and who you are mediator and facilitator that's it I'm just conduit for kind of listening to their ideas and putting their ideas forward in such a way that can strengthen their business. Were there some brilliant ideas? The customers and the staff, that's where it's all going to come from. They're the people that are on front lines. Take 10 or 15 minutes for everybody to loosen up, for them to see that you're not on some side or you haven't got an issue or an agenda. That's a very important point you have to get out, that you're just a facilitator and moderator there. They're the ones that have all the ideas and you're the one who's trying to find out these ideas. That you don't have all the answers. I think it's going to be fatal for somebody to go in there and say, listen, I'm a consultant, I'm here to save the company. I have all the ideas, but I'm just listening to you because it's part of the process. You let them know that the ideas are going to come from them. Exactly. And also, I think on the write-up stage, it's very important to go back and show these people that you have actually used their ideas. Listen to them, and for the ones that you haven't used, to acknowledge the fact that they actually did give you good ideas, but it just didn't fit the time or the place at the moment. Well, Do you make sure. notes of all the employees and their names? i got to register so that I can call on them by name rather than kind of going pointing and saying, yeah, you. You know, that's all done for me before going. Has it been more work than you anticipated? I don't know. If I'd probably drop it down to about 12 if I had the option again. You deposited a big check the other day? 60,000 euro. When he sells the big four, does he include internet marketing as step number eight, as in the training DVDs, or does he make word-of-mouth marketing number eight, as in the PowerPoint presentations? Training, internet marketing. Word-of-mouth marketing I take as referrals. Or I will be teaching that as an ongoing process between the client and the company, the company and their customers. As regards, it's an ongoing process as when you serve the customer, you ask for a referral. You always ask for the referral. You educate the, your client. You teach your client to educate their customers to the value that you've given them and ask them, do they know anybody else who would appreciate the value that you can give? Rather than making it a process, rather than making it a step, 
I kind of look at it as making a process. And I kind of refer back to the Abraham's Pearl system. If anybody can get a hold of that, it really is excellent. All right, number two, what range are your clients' annual sales in U.S. dollars, 500000 to $5 million. What's the average annual sales? Everybody pays the same, and does everyone pay the same fee for each project? The consultants in the U.S. are going to have a huge advantage over the likes of myself and people who direct mail or direct marketing lists. Our companies, brokers, are not as sophisticated as in Ireland, as in the States, but Irish broker lists companies aren't very sophisticated. I had this um, conversation with yourself, Michael, a couple of times over email. Brokers lists do not have access to sales figures. So basically what I did was assumed if a company had between 15 and 250 employees that it would be making between 500,000 and a million. That's the assumption I made. You could get number of employees in the data? Correct, but I couldn't get sales and still can't and because of that protection here, won't ever be able. So that data is just not allowed? Even if it's offered by the company to the list broker, the list broker cannot tender it for public knowledge. So across my clients by uh, employee number and just made the assumption that if they were that big to be able to pay between 15 and 250 employees that were making a certain amount of sales per year and just went with that. Were they forthcoming with their sales figures in the opportunity analysis? They were very guarded. Did you ask? Uh, no. Okay. Um, but I will say one thing during the opportunity analysis, I vetted them as in I said, listen, can you, will you be able to handle the 20% or 30% or 40% jump in sales? our business and my fee was between 3500 and 5000 per project can you afford that if they said yes they were in if they said no i said well good luck i won't negotiate on fee ever yes between 3500 and 5000 if you start negotiating on fee you're saying that you don't believe in, in the value that you can offer to that client i mean we're always saying that usp price is not a USP, but you're going in and the minute that the person kind of, you feel resistance against price, you're lowering your price. What I do is I show what I can do for that client for that fee. Let me put it this way. One thing I would say to somebody if they give me a bit, little bit of resistance is, how much do you pay your secretary per year? And the normal average rate for secretary over here would be about 22,000 a year, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, okay, so for four steps of what I'm doing for you, it will cost you 15,000, let's say. I can increase your business by at least 20%. What is your secretary doing for your business? And you're paying her 8,000 more than me. I would never negotiate on fee. I mean, if they either want you or they don't want you. And if they don't, that's fine. Just go and find somebody else who will pay your fee. You will find them. But on the last teleconference call I was on, he was saying that a lot of the HMA consultants were complaining of low fees. But that's their own fault because they're not creating the market for themselves on that basis. I mean, if you've got nothing else to offer except low price, they're going to perceive you as having no value. When demand goes up, price goes up, you're chock full of clients right now. What if a client said, David, I really want your consulting work now? Would you consider a higher fee on the waiting list? It would depend. I mean, I've got four on the waiting list already for a start in mid-March and have paid me 3500 See, your price should be going up now on the waiting list because of your demand. What I want to do is I want to make sure that I've got a good market penetration before I start doing anything iffy with the price. I mean, I'm okay with the price at the moment. I mean, when I do get some market penetration, and get some face value and face time in the market, then definitely. What will probably happen is I'll start bringing my client load down and my price up. Rather than working for 17, I'll work for 
Ace, but get the same price, same price overall. Did you have any resistance to the 5000 per step? It's U.S. 5000 It seems incredible that a bowling alley would pay 20000 to increase its business. Just how big is this bowling alley? How did you come up with 3500 euros? Did everyone pay up front, or did some pay half now with the balance to be paid at project completion? The reason I find it interesting is because the ask of the question is focusing on what the client had to pay me, but the focus should be on what value is the client getting. I mean, he's paying 20000 but I mean, a 20% jump in his business might bring him an extra 40000 It's not what you get at the client, it's the value that you can bring that client based on whatever I bring him. I mean, the HMA consultants have to look at it from their point of view. You have to look at it from the client's point of view. I mean, that 20000 I could bring him an extra forty, if it's good, an, an extra 60000 it doesn't matter how big the bowling alley is because of the value you bring in for that 20000 When he started the bowling alley, he may have put down 150, 200000 just for the bowling alley with no guarantee in return. No guarantee at all. I feel there's a lot of fear among the consultants to actually ask for fees that they want because they're scared of, of somebody saying no. Like I think the fear of rejection is a huge issue with the consultants out there at the moment. But you've got to get people who do say no to you, and of course, and the thing about it is don't take it personally. But you have to have a standard value for yourself. You can't let people dictate your sense of your own value. That's my value. This is what I can bring first. If you're interested, you're interested, and this is why I think you should be. And if you're not, well, fair enough, maybe we can do business in the future. But, I mean, that, that question is fantastic because it does bring that point out. That the answer of the question is completely focused on what the client is giving me or would be giving him, let's say, if he was in my position rather than what he can give to the client for that amount of money. I mean, it could be a huge case of me, or even the ask of the question, if it was him, underpricing himself for the amount of value that he gave to the client. How did you come up with the 3,500 euros? I based it on the prices given by the two coaching franchises in my area. Did everyone pay up front, or did some pay half now with the balance to be paid at project completion? Up front. How large is the population of your client base? I mean, with a 50-minute driving radius, he mentioned, I asked this because my city has a population of about 28,000 people in a rural county in southern Oregon, so I can't market to a major city. Will this matter? Maybe I said 50 minutes. It's actually 50 miles. My region, Connacht, houses about half a million people. Are you right in the city? Yeah, I live in the main town. But the town that I actually live in only has 15,000, and that's where my clients are at the moment. So he is actually nearly double the people in his town. What I would say to that person is just be very focused on what you need. Be laser focused on your market. Be laser focused on the type of clients you want. And then find where those clients are as in Chamber of Commerce for a town that big. I'm sure there's some sort of business associations, trading associations, things like that. Focus on those. So you try and get a foot in with that. You basically just follow the system, but be very focused on what you look for. I mean, a four-hour drive from Portland, yes, that's fine, okay. But I wouldn't leave Portland out. I would target Portland after you've got a foot in this wherever he lives uh, in the rural county. And then what I would do is, if it's a four-hour drive, make the four-hour drive worth your while. What I would do is I would try and bunch them together, take a four-hour drive, which would be, let's say, five in the morning till ten, do three or four-hour-long off analysis. That would bring you to one or two. And then a four-hour drive would be back for six. Yeah, it's a 12-hour day, but you've got, you have to try and get a foothold in these places. I mean, there must be a Chamber of Commerce Trade Association. It's definitely a paper. There might even be a local radio station for that area. And get in there. And the thing about it is, if he thinks it's so small, that makes him the obvious. He can become the obvious expert to everybody in whatever area he wants to become the obvious expert in. Yeah, the big fish in the small pond. This is it. I mean, that's the way I am at the moment.
I mean, get out and work the system. He needs to elaborate on how he overcame any resistance between his short USD, 20% increase in sales in 20 days, and the four-step program, which will last 80 days. I love the USD, but I think it will come back to haunt him by setting too high an expectation. I suppose if I found a client with a great USP that was fully integrated, number one and number two, then I could start with step number three and increase sales in 20 days. This did not happen. First of all, you get over and resistance by finding out their needs, their hopes and aspirations for the business. What you do is you work how you can make that happen into the conversation. You don't come up against any resistance if you can do that. Now, that's only if you can help them. But, I mean, resistance is only lack of education. If you get resistance, that means you haven't done your job properly to the point that they know what they can do for you for the fee you're charging. Now, if you can't help them, you have to be honest and tell them, listen, I'm sorry, I can't help them. I mean, if I came up against somebody who had a fantastic USP, had it fantastically integrated, and had all the steps of the system perfectly down, I'd have put my hands up and say, listen, I'm sorry, you're doing everything perfectly, I can't help you. Hopefully that will never happen, because then I'll be out of business. But what I'm saying is, when you find a situation where you can't help somebody, it's up to you, it's your job as a client, during the op analysis, to educate the person to the point that they have no questions. Resistance is only questions. Education overcomes resistance. How would you answer a 20% increase in sales in 20 days? Do you think that's going to come back and bite you? And if not, why? I don't think it is, and I'll tell you why. Because they don't know what your system is. As regards, they don't know what you're doing. I mean, if I want, and it hasn't come up yet, I'll just say nobody's ever pulled me on it. Nobody's been specific about it. None of them have come out and said, I want this result in 20 days. Well, I'll give you an example. There was a gentleman on the call yesterday, and he really liked your USP, 20% increase in sales in 20 days. And I said we had worked on that. And he goes, you know, maybe I should change it 20% increase in two months. And I go, you know what? Use it, but use 20% increase in sales in 20 days because it acts as a headline. And and once you qualify yourself, they're not going to be thinking about that. Remember as well, 20% in 20 days is a guarantee based on your client's action. If you make a recommendation, he must action it within that 20 days. Now, if somebody said to me in an off analysis, I want this 20% in 20 days, fine. Where are the low-hanging fruit? Where could I make the biggest impact in 20 days? What I would do then, I would make a separate step, as in a first step, before defining the USP. What I would do is I would go into their sales. Are the salespeople underperforming? How do they use their database? Use that as step one. Get the growth from that in 20 days. Present that as your USP, your 20% growth in 20 days, offer it as a freebie, and then go on to defining the USP. You've already proved yourself, and as far as they're concerned, this is still step one. This is what Richard was talking about. If anybody can access the first teleconference with Richard and really listen to what he was saying, I think you asked him that very question, and he came back and he said, they don't know what the steps of the system are. Go into where the low-hanging fruit is. Go into the database. Are they using the database? Do they have salespeople that aren't performing? Things that you know will get instant results when you start changing them. And then it's based on the client's action. How have you set those expectations with your client that he's going to need to execute with you, with his employees and such? I put it forward as a teaching experience. That what I'm doing is I will execute, administer, I will mastermind, administer, and execute the system. But I will also teach them so that it's not a once-off thing, that they can reproduce what I have done while I'm not there, when a contract ends or agreement ends. 
So within that education, they have to execute to learn, and that's going to take time. You'll still see results within the 90 days based on your action of my recommendations. What information did you put on your business cards, and did you market yourself as a Lone Ranger, Dave Flannery Consultants, or as a business with himself as the president? Because of business law over here in Ireland, you have to register. You can't start a business. You have to register as a business. My business card is about one and a half inches by two and a half inches. Regular business card size? Regular business card size. It, the writing is all in blue because I've read some research where blue writing on white background is regarded as the most business-like. So the first line is David Family Consulting, and the second line then is Grow Your Business 20% in 20 Days Guaranteed. Then, closer to the middle then, you've got David Flannery MBA and Managing Consultant, because that is what you're doing. You're managing your own business and you're a consultant. I mean, president and CEO, these things don't really mean much over here. Top managing consultant was more explicit as regards what I'm doing. Then you've, underneath that, you've got Ireland's number one HMA business growth expert. Then underneath that again, you've got, again, my USP, grow your business in 20% in 20 days guaranteed. And then it's just contact information, small lettering under that. I've got my address my email, phone numbers, and international inquiries number. I mean, it's very basic. I mean, there's nothing anybody couldn't do, you know. Do you have plans to have a website? If you already have one, what's the domain name? I am. I'm actually bartering with a couple of designers at the moment. It'll probably be a month before it's up, but yeah, there's one on the way. So you're going to barter your consulting services? Yeah. Now, why would you do that? Because it saves me money, and when they do, I do a good job for them, I can JV with them for their database. Money saved is money earned, right? There you go. <laughs> good job. Okay, number eight. When he completed the opportunity analysis, did he close step one without preparing a proposal? Does he do business without a contract? Yeah. I did all the op analysis based on the eight projects, then recommended the core four with a view to approach the big four at a later stage. So I always recommend the core four based on, obviously, if the company doesn't, obviously doesn't have USP, it's not integrated, they don't have any of the steps in place. Uh, but I will always do the op, op analysis based on a project plan. Recommend the core four, but with a view to approaching the big four at a later stage when the core four has shown results. Yes, I, I close the core four without a proposal. Because if you need, again, you see, a proposal to me is questions. And questions to me is lack of education. So if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, give me a proposal, what that says to me is, well, if he's asking for a proposal, it means I haven't explained what this is all about. Now, it's a different thing if they ask for an agreement, which is the other part of the question. I have one drawn up, and myself and myself have discussed it over email, Michael. I have one drawn up, but I haven't used it yet. It's always been on the handshake. I have one, like I said. I don't know if you listened to the Sam Bowman interview, the guy in Tennessee. That was a fantastic interview. Yeah, and he does the same thing, all his handshakes. Plus the fact my agreement would be about is no longer than one page long and it's all in English not lawyerese because contracts scare people it's simple if one was put in front of me to scare me especially after an up analysis whatever goodwill you get from educating somebody if you slap a four page five page contract in front of them it's going to go out the window. I mean, there's always time between the op analysis and the first step of project one, the focus group, to reassess in your head what's gone on the op analysis, what kind of signals did you get off somebody. And if you feel a little that maybe this guy's a little bit dodgy or whatever else, yeah, I got some mixed signals, by all means bring an agreement along on the first step and say, listen, take a read of that. It's a page long. What do you think? Have somebody look over it, no problem. You've always got time between the app analysis and the first step of project one. Go back over in your head, see what signals you got. And if you don't feel good, by all means, use an agreement. I haven't used one yet. I haven't used a proposal. I think proposal is just a sign that you haven't done your job. There's a proposal outline in the training materials. By all means, use it. 
I just haven't found the need yet. It's kind of like two people getting married, you know, that marriages, yeah, with the prenuptials, most of them end in divorce because when you say you want to sign this, you're already admitting that there's going to be problems. Yeah, the biggest thing that I've found during this whole adventure is education is the key. I mean, at the end of the day, all these people want is results. They don't care how you get them, really. They don't care that if your method is to drive around in your car with a megaphone and shout now at the top of your voice for 12 hours around the streets. If that works for them, it works for them. They just want results. They don't really care how you're going to go and get it. But during the op analysis, tell them anyway. Half the time, they won't be listening to you. They're just worried about results. All right, one more question that just came in along these lines. During David's first audio segment, he mentioned his core four projects. I'd ask that he describes them as I'd like to know if the same four projects could be applied effectively to his diverse customers that include retail, restaurants, and a bowling alley. And he wants to know, are these core four applicable for the diverse customers that you have? He's saying, will these core four fit you know, for the, all these different types of businesses? The core four are defining the USP or EVP. Now, USP is unique selling position. EVP is extra value proposition. Okay? That's project one. Project two then is once you find and define your USP, you integrate it into the sales structure that's already there. Project mm-hmm. three then is database marketing. You go into the person's database as in customer list, as in past customers, present customers, and prospective customers. Then four is strategic alliances, joint ventures, seeing what outside the company you can look for alliances and alliance partners. These the core four that can be applied to every single business known to man. I mean, everybody needs a USP, everybody needs an EVP. That EVP is the reason that people do business with that company. Everybody needs, that reason needs to be told every single contact with a client, whether it be on a business card, whether it be on the way um, a receptionist picks up the phone, the greeting, the way it's on an answering machine service. It has to be integrated into everything, the way the salespeople make a sales pitch. That's US, that reason why the company thinks that people should do business with them. Database marketing. It costs so much to get one customer through marketing, through direct mail, through everything. It costs so much to get one customer. Why let them go after just one sale? Go into your database, you go into your list. You look at past customers. You look at present customers. You look at people who may be your customers in the future. Go into reactivate your past customers with a reactivation letter, a reactivation promotion, whatever it might be. On your present customers, you'll work at retaining them. You'll work your back end, okay? And on futures then, education. You follow up on every sale or every prospective sale. You learn how to increase your closing rate. Every single business can use that. There's not a business out there that can't. Would you agree with that? I would. And strategic alliances then, I mean, every business and company in the world, global and international, are using strategic alliances. The one that everybody would know would be Coca-Cola and McDonald's. I mean, McDonald's only sell Coke. Or McDonald's and Disney, where the Happy Meal toys are all Disney toys. Even a pass, but then bring it down to the basic. Bring it down to the basic. A retail shop using or selling lawnmowers that may not click at the time, but what you see then is they're using each other's database. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, the core four and the big four, I mean, you can go to the big four as well. You know, I mean, media, everybody uses media. You've got community marketing and PR. The big companies, community marketing is huge at the moment. Everybody wants sponsorship, everybody wants sponsorship deals or given to humanitarian aid, things like that. Banks, direct marketing is another method to get into your marketplace, get direct 
focus on your target market. And then internet marketing. I mean, everybody's using internet marketing. There's nothing more I can say about that. I mean, there's not one project there that can't be used by every single type of business. I mean, I'm just wondering from the question, does the questioner have a, a type of business in mind that he thought, what company or what business he might, he might be thinking of that might not be able to? I think his question was, are all businesses essentially the same? Or are they different? No. And I think you answered it. Getting a customer and making a sale. Simple as that. All right. Hey, this has been great. It's about 7 o'clock there, and I'm sure you've got a pretty busy day tomorrow. Yeah. What's the day of day Flannery going to be like with 17 clients? What are you going to be doing tomorrow? Start of the step two, customer service. So I'm going to be on the phone a lot. I'm hopefully going to make about, about 120 calls tomorrow. All right, Dave. Hey, this has been awesome. Let's just keep doing this, and we'll do another call after you've done all the USPs for everyone. How about that? You shoot me an email about a day before. Got it. All right. Have a great one. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. No problem at all. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Hi, it's Michael with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com in another bonus tip. How would you like to turn your $28 book or ebook or even a concept in your head into a $3,900 information product? I'll provide you the secrets on how to do this. If you'd like a completely free 30-day trial of my system for turning your simple book or even just a concept in your mind into an information product that you can sell for or even as much as $3,900 or more. This system includes a whole range of tricks and tips to help you pack your audio program full of great stories that take control of your listeners' brains. My information product creation system comes with my personal guarantee that you'll create an information product worth from $97 to $497 that's designed to sell like hotcakes. This is a 30-day free trial. If you'd like information on this, please email me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line, write in all caps, $28 book, and I'll email you information on how to turn your $28 book or even a concept in your mind into a $3,900 information product.